All right, well, we are going to be in, um, we, we've been in a series called, called Campfire Stories, and we've been looking at Old Testament stories and their relevance for us today. Sometimes stories that we don't remember, maybe we learned in Sunday school when we were kids, or maybe we never heard them, and unpacking some of those truths that are relevant for us today. So today we're going to be in the book of Daniel. I love the book of Daniel. So it's one of, he's one of the prophets. It's a little more than halfway through your Bible. You can go ahead, if you have your Bibles, or turn on your phones to Daniel. And um, it's, it's after the book of Ezekiel. It's kind of hard. There's a lot of prophets right in a row. But between Ezekiel and Hosea, give you a chance to, to turn there. But I thought the best way to start today was with a game. Anybody? Yeah. All right, so I got a little game for you. I'm going to show you a logo that has part of the logo removed, part of the words removed, and you get a guess. We have five, so you have an opportunity. You can score yourself, see if you can beat the person sitting next to you. That's fine. A little healthy competition. And I'm going to show you this and then see if you can identify the brand. Okay? Sound fun? Awesome. Okay, here's the first one. Mmm, here in Nestle. All right, and the answer is Nescafe. Did anybody get it right? Oh, oh, a couple of you. Yes, I guarantee our cold brew is better than Nescafe. <laughs> Instant coffee. Okay, let's do the next one. Maybe you missed that one. Maybe this one. Okay. Mmm, hearing a couple things, Frito-Lay. Let's see what it is. Lays. I heard a couple people say it. Who's 0 for 2 right now? Yeah, a lot of it. Okay, okay, oh, here's an easy one. Easy one, everybody should get this. Ready? Oh, in unison, Pizza Hut. Which is hilarious because the logo has nothing to do with what the food that they serve. But... Pizza Hut. Okay, let's, let's do one, two more. We got two more. Mmm. Many of you see this every single day and you don't even realize it. The answer is Goodyear. <laughs> oh, Goodyear. Okay, one more, one more. You can redeem yourself here. One of my favorite logos. And the answer is North Face, McDowell Mountain, no. North Face, one of my favorite brands. I love North Face. All right, did anybody get all five? Anybody? Oh, man. (laughs) Four out of five is pretty good. I'll hand it to you. But um, we are surrounded by logos and symbols every single day of our lives. And sometimes we're... We're familiar with what they are and what they mean and their presence in our lives, but sometimes we're not. And sometimes those, those symbols, those memories, like pictures, can take us back to a moment in an instant. And sometimes they're great memories and sometimes they're not so good memories. And sometimes when we see a logo or a brand, we can identify. And we, and we build our lives around these, right? The shirts that we wear, the shoes that we wear, the cars we drive, the tires we put on our car, whatever it may be, we build our lives so often around logos 
and symbols. And that's exactly what the book of Daniel is about. If I had to sum it up in one word, the book of Daniel is about symbols. Symbols and visions and images. And as you read it, when you read it this, this week, I hope that you, you go back and you read it and the story stirs in you something like, I want to go back and read the rest of these stories because they're so rich, they're so good. I hope that you'll think through that lens. What are the symbols and the logos and the story of Daniel as well as the symbols in, in my life? So Daniel, chapter 1. You'll see what I mean in just a second. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia. Now, you may not have recognized this because you're not Hebrews living in the time, but they're That sentence is packed with symbols. It's packed with symbols. Here are a couple of them. Babylon. Babylon is like pure evil, okay? When you see the word Babylon in the Bible, you think competing with God, okay? The Tower of Babel. Genesis? Does anybody recognize the Tower of Babel? All the way to the book of Revelation. So the first pages of the Bible, all the way to the end, the book of Revelation, Babylon is painted as the evil empire all throughout. And to set up the book of Daniel, what happens here in this first sentence, what we find out is that Nebuchadnezzar comes and he, he takes over Jerusalem. And he ends up burning down the temple. He takes the goods of the temple, and he takes those goods back to Babylon. How dare he? How dare he? This was the temple that Solomon built. That's the second, if you see the word temple, hey, that should be a hyperlink for you. Okay, that, that, is, that is a logo in the Bible that will come up, a theme that will come up again and again and again and again and again. The temple it symbolized the presence of God. You know, he used to travel around with the Israelites in a tabernacle, but then Solomon built this temple, and the presence of God was in the temple. It symbolized that God was with the people. And all of a sudden, that's destroyed, and the artifacts from the temple were taken back to Babylon. And who's the third symbol in there? Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? This figure in world history, is larger than life. The Babylonian Empire, you know, we know it from Hammurabi's Code. You, you guys didn't know you were going to go back to school today, did you? And learn about the Babylonian Empire. But Nebuchadnezzar is a larger-than-life picture of what it means to compete with God. And this figure came in, and Walter Brueggemann, he's a famous theologian, he, he talked about how Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is is a symbol and a logo for displaced, deported, and defeated people of Hebrew with few hopes, deep losses, and treasured memories. When you see the word Babylon, when you see the word Nebuchadnezzar, and at this point when you see temple that has now been destroyed, 
You should be thinking about deep losses. Are you there? Are you thinking about that? You didn't think that you were going to come in today and think about, like, what is life like as, as a Hebrew living at this time? And the temple was destroyed in about 587 um, B.C., so this is before Jesus, okay? And all the artifacts are taken away. And we find out that Nebuchadnezzar and the Empire of Babylon take a few of the most... Um, good-looking, strong, intelligent people of the courts, and they bring them to serve the God in Babylon. And we, this, the book of Daniel is about four of them, okay? The first one is Daniel. Here's their names. So this, it tells us their names. I, I, I love this. This is also a symbol, a logo for the Hebrew people. Their names were very, very important to who they were, to their identity. Daniel, God is my judge. Love that. So if you have a Daniel, any Daniels in the room, great name. Hananiah, that's a little less popular. <laughs> but still a great meaning. God has been gracious. Mishael, even less popular, who is like God, and Azariah, whom God helps. These are great, great names, right? They get back to Babylon, and the first thing Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire do is change their names. To Daniel, he gives the name Belteshazzar. Bel will protect you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God is my judge, to Bel will protect you? Hananiah, God has been gracious. He changes it to Shadrach, created by a coup. Who is a coup? Mishael, who is like God? Man, this is like exactly, who is like a coup? Can you imagine? And Azariah, whom God helps, they change his name to Abednego, servant of Nego, one of their sun gods. So, you're confronted. You're one of these four. You've experienced the demolition of, of the temple. You're taken to the evil empire under Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned over 40 years. You're taken out of your home, and you're given a new identity. And I know this is extreme, but how often in our lives do we feel like people give us the wrong identity. People get the wrong impression of us. How many times in our life do we feel like the enemy is at the gates? Do we feel displaced, unknown? That's what this story is about. And I, I, honestly, I think Daniel has incredible wisdom for our culture today. Because even though it may not be as as obvious as this is changing our name from who is like God to who is Aku, culture often pulls us into streams, into phases of our life, seasons of our life, that we, we wonder, well, how did I get here? How did I get here? And so we're going to dive into a little bit of a story about not so much Daniel, but his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Want to hear a story about these guys? So chapter 3, verse 1, this evil king Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
Now, I have an issue a lot of times with the translation of our Bibles. You've translated the words, but you didn't translate the measurements, right? What is a cubit, okay? So it's about, for reference, it's about 90 feet tall. I don't know how tall this ceiling is, maybe about 30, 40 feet, so um, maybe double that, okay? So you imagine about 90 feet tall and 10 feet wide. And we're not told what this image of gold is, but we can only imagine what would a selfish, prideful king make an image of? Probably himself, right? It could have been just a gold, gold statue, but um, there were other images. This is not the only mention in the ancient world of a gold image that is created to embody an empire. There's a famous one, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's called the Colossus of Rhodes. I think I have a picture of it. Colossus of Rhodes. Yes, he would stand with both feet on the entrance. Rhodes is an island off of Greece, and you had to pass through this. I mean, think, like, here's empire. We're telling you that you are entering into an empire. This one was even bigger. The Colossus of Rhodes was even bigger than the one that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And there are other mentions in the ancient world of these. One of them came um, at the time just after Jesus' ministry. Nero, Emperor Nero, who persecuted the Christians, set up a gold statue of an image of himself that was even taller than this. So imagine after Jesus comes and, you, and you're, you're, now you're back in Jerusalem and the Roman Empire is attacking and persecuting you, what, what story do you turn to for hope? Turn to Daniel, Daniel 3. Now, in this, in this verse, image of gold, that's a logo, okay? That's one of those words that should hyperlink for us. Image, in Hebrew, salem. Can you say salem? salem. You didn't know you were going to learn Hebrew today, did you? Salem, image. Anybody know where the first recording of that word is in the Bible? Page one, page one of the Bible. It's always on page one. That's always the answer. <laughs> Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our salem to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own salem. In the salem of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then we find out in Exodus, the Ten Commandments, you shall not make any salem out of anything. You are the Salem of God. You're not supposed to bow to an idol or an image. You're not supposed to make these huge gold statues. You are the Salem, the people sitting next to you. You're the Salem of God. You're the image and likeness of God. And that's why he was so ardent throughout Scripture that, no, you are the image. You are supposed to reflect God in the world. We shouldn't have to look to logos or images or symbols that we erect in our lives, the cars that we drive, the clothes that we wear. No, you are the Salem. When you treat people with love, with grace, with compassion, you are being the Salem of God. Isn't that great? Amen. Salem. Image. 
At least that's what the Hebrews would have been thinking when they heard this. But the herald loudly proclaimed of Nebuchadnezzar, the herald of Nebuchadnezzar, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you were commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, what is a zither? The lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. All right, everybody is invited. The satraps, the prefects, the half and halves. I don't know. This huge list of all these people in the kingdom are invited. And the king says, not only have I created this image, this salem that looks at me instead of God, I'm going to require everybody to come and bow down to it. How prideful do you have to be, right? So not only do I have this huge image, I'm going to require that everybody come, and I'm going to, the, the zither and the flute and the harp are going to be playing, and I, I can't imagine what that sounds like, right? All at once, and everybody, when this happens, you are to bow. But there's something wrong. Somebody notices three individuals who are not present at the assembly. Can you guess who they are? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Now, in chapter, chapters 1 and 2 of Daniel, we find out that they actually, because of their faith in God, they assume positions of, of royalty, really. They, they become kind of kings or um, governors of these little provinces of the city and the, the state of Babylon. And so they're given opportunities in, in Babylon because of their faithfulness to God. But now that there's an image, they're not protesting. They're not down there making music with a guitar in front of everybody else. They're in their prayer room. They're in the closet. They're behind closed doors. Just not participating. But somebody notices and tells the king, and tells Nebuchadnezzar, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're not here. Furious with rage, verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he asked them, is it true? I built this idol to symbolize our empire. You should forget, right? You should forget where you came from, what your old names were, the God that rescued you in the past. He's not going to rescue you anymore. Can't you see You are in Babylon. You are in my kingdom. And yet, they were quietly protesting. You see, we are confronted when culture and the streams of culture try to divert our attention from faithfulness to God. We have this this opportunity. Do we assimilate to culture? Do we bow down to it? Or do we quietly, at times, protest? Not with loud trumpets. Not in front of the entire assembly, but quietly, through prayer and faithfulness. Nebuchadnezzar tells them, you're going to be thrown into the blazing fire. I'm going to give you another opportunity. And when you hear the flute and the zither and the lyre and the harp 
and the drums and the whatever else, you must bow down. And here's their response. Verse 16. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the Salem, the image of gold you have set up. Is that not the nicest protest you've ever heard? I mean, your majesty, we will not bow to your image of gold. And we know that God can save us. But even if he doesn't, your majesty... They're so polite. Are we polite on Twitter and Instagram and uh, all these avenues of, of announcements that we have in the world? We're so polite. But a couple things else to notice in this response. First of all, it's the confession. The confession that we know that our God is able. We proclaim it, we confess it, we know that our God is able. But even if he doesn't, we will not submit to you or your image or your gods. A simple confession, a statement of faith. I love that. Secondly, um, this is what I believe is one of the first small groups. There's three of them. <laughs> yes, community life pastor, right? journal coming in this fall if you want to lead a small group. There's three of them. Imagine if they'd just taken Shadrach and put him up there, you know, crumble. Like, I don't know, okay. But there's three of them standing there together. I love that, the power in numbers. I need you. You need me. We need each other. Also, it's incredible to me how King Nebuchadnezzar becomes his own worst enemy. He has set the scene for everybody in the, in the entire kingdom to come. And now they're all standing there, and they all hear the confession of these three. Not because they inserted themselves into the conversation, but because the king, out of his pride, brought them into the conversation. He's simply asking the question, will you bow? And they respond, no, we will not. And everybody's there to witness it, right? The scene is perfect. So the king, obviously he's outraged. And he's so furious that he says the furnace heated up seven times hotter. And with immediacy, it tells us that they didn't even have time to change their clothes. He took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he took them down to the furnace, and he threw them into the fire. It was so hot that the guards that brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the fire, they died trying to throw these men into the blazing furnace. It was so hot. And so wild, he's so prideful and so outraged. And all I can think about that fire is this picture from man camp last year. 
Another shameless plug for man camp. Um, this is what you get when you invite the community life pastor to speak, you know. So, uh, man camp, that is Kyle. That's Sarah, our student life director's husband. And I'm pretty sure that, that marshmallow that he's holding, you can see it there, just disintegrated. <laughs> we all had sunburns the next morning because that bonfire was so big. Um, anyway, that's, that's, that's funny. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar throws these men into the fire, and then he says, wait! How many men did we throw in? Like, he's too prideful to even know. He's too ego-driven to even care. And his advisors say, we threw in three. He says, I see four men in the fire. There's another in the fire with them. And he stands up and he shouts and he says, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out. Come out. And they walk out of that blazing furnace. And the story tells us their clothes were not burned. Not a hair on their body was singed. And it says they didn't even smell like smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, I love this, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Now, what a statement and what a story, right? I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar said that because he truly believed it or if he said that because he was trying to save face. Man, these three men just walked out of the fire. You have to give praise to that God. And I will ask you, is your life the kind of testimony, the kind of quiet resistance that people take notice when God rescues you in the midst of the fire? So a couple thoughts about this story. Number one, confession precedes belief. Often confession precedes belief. I want to believe it. I know I should believe it. But even if God doesn't save us, I'm still going to confess it. I'm still going to stand in it. Because I know the truth about my God. The best part of the story is not that they were saved. <laughs> That's what we often think. The best part of the story is, is that these three men were saved. No, the best part of the story is that they were willing to go into the fire, whether it killed them or not. Their confession preceded the belief that God could save them. Secondly, I think it's that very fact that they were still thrown into the fire. God didn't deliver them at the gates of the furnace. He delivered them in the fire. He didn't put out the fire. Instead, he went in there with them. And some of us need to hear that today, that even though there's a fire in your life, even though there's a challenge that you're facing, and we pray that all the time, and it's not a bad prayer. God, protect me from this. Keep me from this. Jesus prayed it. Lord, if you can take this cup from me, it's not a bad prayer. It's a good prayer. But the reality is that more often times than not, 
God doesn't save us from the diagnosis. He doesn't save us from the divorce. He doesn't save us from the challenge and the fire and the hurt and the pain and the suffering. He saves us in the midst of it. And sometimes we're so focused on the fire that it takes somebody else to recognize he was with you the entire time. You see, he's, he may not keep you from the fire, but he will keep you from being consumed by it. If you trust and you faith and you hold to your confession, I believe that. And maybe the fire isn't even about you. Maybe the fire isn't about you being rescued. Maybe the fire is about giving hope to somebody down the line. Maybe God will use your suffering your circumstance, your challenge to help somebody else. See, your testimony is not about how many ca- catastrophes you sidestep. That's not, that story wouldn't be in the Bible if they just walked away. It's not about how many catastrophes you sidestep. It's about if God was with you in the midst of it. So, as, as we kind of land the plane here, what fires are you currently facing? Because if it's a small one, chances are you're being trained and equipped for the bigger fire, the bigger challenge that you'll face. And if it's a big one, you should know that God has always been with you, God will always be with you, and God is with you even now. I love this. In John 14, verse 16 and 17, Jesus to his disciples before he's crucified. He knows that he's going to die on the cross. And he tells them, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. Was it the spirit in the fire? The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor it knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Amen. The Spirit is the symbol that God gives us, that he loves us and he cares for us. The cross is a symbol and a reminder that Jesus allowed death to conquer him so that he could conquer it for you. The empty grave is a symbol that this resurrection life that Jesus experienced, you can experience too both now and forever, the now and not yet, now in part, but eternally forever. The bread and the cup are the symbol of the new covenant, the new life of grace and love, not the covenant of laws and rules. See, God has given us better symbols. God has given us even stronger logos and images to build our life around and our faith around. And he's given us the spirit. So as the band comes up and uh, gets ready to play this last song, we intentionally, there's a song that has been, it's been messing with me a lot. And it's about this story. And there's this line in there. I just keep coming back to and It's so powerful, and it sticks with me. 
It says, there is a joy come every battle because I know that's where you'll be. So whatever fire or challenge or circumstance or battle you are facing today, hold tight to that confession. The truth that the Spirit is with us in the midst of it. There can be a joy in the battle because we know we are assured and we are reminded that God is with us.